Hello, BJJ listeners. I am Andrew Duckworth, and a warm welcome to our second podcast from your team here at the uh, Bone and Joint Journal. As many of you know, the aim and hopes of our podcast are that we will improve the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish for both you as our readers as well as for our authors. During the next 15 minutes or so, we hope to discuss a range of aspects of the chosen study, emphasising the important points of how the work has been designed, as well as the key findings from the study and how these potentially fit into your everyday clinical practices. Uh, we also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the authors have developed the study and how it's gone through the peer review process, and giving them an opportunity to put forward the key findings of their study while also, hopefully, adding to your reader experience. Today, I have the pleasure and honour of being joined by our Editor-in-Chief here at the BJJ, Professor Faris Adas, to discuss their study entitled An Assessment of Early Functional Rehabilitation and Hospital Discharge in Conventional versus Robotic Arm-Assisted Unicompartmental Knee Arthroplasty which will be published in the upcoming edition of the BJJ. Welcome, Prof, and a big thank you for taking your time to join us. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. It's great to have the opportunity to discuss this paper. Great. So, Prof, uh, your study is obviously looking at unicompartmental knee replacement, which for isolated medial compartment OA is known to be an effective procedure that's reported in the literature to have good patient satisfaction, sound preservation of the native knee kinematics, and good long-term functional outcomes. But as you nicely put in your paper, with an increased balance, balance of with an increased risk of impl- implant failure and shorter time to revision surgery when compared to with total knee replacement. Prof, to get us started, can you give us a brief background to the paper in relation to the state of the current literature on UKA and what are felt to be the perceived benefits of robotic arm-assisted surgery? Uh, absolutely. So I think the reality is many of us believe that UKA is a smaller intervention than total knee arthroplasty. It's... Uh, gives us the opportunity to restore more normal knee kinematics to allow patients to recover with less morbidity, with uh, a a better functional profile, if you like, a more normal uh, gait pattern or speed. Mm -hmm. And there is uh, some data suggest there's less mortality from that intervention. Right. I think there's lots out there that has been in the BJJ and elsewhere Mm -hmm. to suggest that Unicompartmental arthroplasty performed well in the right patient is an excellent operation uh, and that we should be performing that in a proportion of our knee arthroplasties. And I would say in my practice, that's about 15 or 20 percent. But certainly certainly that goes up to, uh, as you know, some authors who are talking as high as 40 or 50 percent. Yeah. And I think we have to face the reality that although all of us uh, see excellent outcomes in individual patients, with this procedure, we're also aware that uh, some are failing early, requiring revisions. And when, when we've looked at this before, it's tended to be related either to surgical technique and fixation or related to uh, progression of arthritis, which is often malalignment or overcorrection of the deformity. Yeah. And so we certainly saw an opportunity uh, in a very established uni practice over the last couple of decades to uh, see a new enhanced technology and see whether we can use this technology to replicate a, if you like, a more native alignment for the patient more reproducibly, hopefully limit surgical error, hopefully improve fixation and uh, balance and see where we could go with that. And this study really, we shouldn't over egg it because it's really pilot data. This is the introduction of this technology in our practice and a comparison with the prior data that we had from our existing technique that we had evolved over the past 20 years. 
Yeah, and you, it would be fair to say, Professor, sorry, the, the 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 literature is still very much in its infancy about the robotic arm assist surgery. Would you would you agree with that? We're still le learning as we go. Uh, absolutely, no doubt about that. The uh, there's very little that's written in this area. This is a relatively novel technology. Yeah. Uh, the, when when you look at the literature, there are a few studies out there, but they're really case series generally. Mm -hmm often from innovators or early adopters. So, so this is an area that requires scrutiny uh, and requires much bigger studies. Yeah, yeah. So as you alluded to, Prof, it was obviously, a, um, you know, it's, like you say, it's a, a, a series of comparing the two different types of, of, of uni knees. So you're, you're, obviously your primary objective of the study was to compare the difference in the post-operative pain, that was your primary outcome between the conventional jig-based mobile bearing uni knees and the robotic arm fixed bearing uni knees and there was obviously a range of other secondary outcome measures which we'll obviously come on to um, and the study you had 146 patients and they all had symptomatic medial compartment OA uh, and you had 73 consecutive patients who underwent the conventional surgery then followed by 73 consecutive patients who underwent robotic arm surgery so just to give the readers an idea about the, the type of patient involved could you just go through the inclusion exclusion criteria for OSPOF and a bit about the, the obviously the surgical techniques which are well described in the paper and the perioperative care so, so these are all patients that would fit in the category of what you would call anteromedial or varus osteoarthritis. Right. They, ha they have isolated medial compartment disease. Uh, their ACL is intact. Uh, they uh, have not all had cross-sectional imaging in terms of MRI scan. They've had CT if they've had a robotic procedure. But as far as we know, they have correctable varus with a uh, well-preserved lateral compartment. We've accepted those with patellofemoral disease on the medial side or centrally in the trochlea but we've excluded the patients who had uh, patella subluxation or uh, grade three or four damage laterally. We've also been careful to fix flexion about 15 degrees was the extreme we would go to and 10 degrees of varus. Anything beyond that, we tended to rule out uh, on the basis those patients ended up with a total knee replacement. And so in terms of prof, in terms of, I saw that all patients underwent a general anaesthetic. Was this, is this the part of the, your practice? Because obviously it's a single surgeon series. Is, and how would you sort of relate that to the, you know, the standard, you know, it's quite variable, isn't it? The practice regarding whether it's a GA or a, or a spinal or, or, or just a GA in a block, really? No, it's a, it's a great question because this is, it's just been our practice. It's a historical practice based on the two anaesthetists who were involved in this series. So all these patients were anaesthetized by one of two anaesthetists who just happened to be comfortable uh, with uh, GAs. Sure. There's, there's no question that the enhanced recovery pathways that we're looking at now increasingly and the push towards day case arthroplasty, increasingly people are using single shot spinals uh, and regional blocks are becoming more and more common. But, yeah. uh, but our practice, and uh, we were very careful here not to change our practice other mm. than surgical technique when we introduced the robotic arm uh, has been to give a, a general anesthetic. So we've continued doing it. Yeah. And I suppose in, in some ways, you know, it, because it was GA, um, if anything, you could have underestimated the results really of, of the robotic arm. Would that be fair to say in some ways? That's true. That's, that, that's absolutely true. Cause yeah. Uh, in terms of the outcome measures, Prof, what, what sort of made you pick the, you know, the primary outcome measure as it was in terms of the pain and then the secondary, what was your thinking behind that? What what drove those decisions? Uh, a number of things. I mean, the, the, the first is that although there are very few studies on robotic surgery, uh, there was a, a randomized control study 15 or more years ago from Justin Cobb mm. that suggested a similar signal with decreased early pain. And Mark Blythe's study from yeah. Glasgow also suggested uh, decreased early pain. So we thought there might be a signal there. We wanted a, uh, 
validated score, which this pain score is. Uh, it's been more used in the shoulder than the knee, but there was some pre-existing data we could do a power analysis on. And we wanted something that the patients could score rather than us being able to bias it. So this, yeah. is, a, you know, it's a, this is a patient-derived score, uh, and it's measuring the one variable we think is key to focus on here, particularly as we saw the opportunity uh, to try and, if we reduce pain, we're likely to be able to reduce length of stay and improve recovery. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's a really interesting point, that isn't it? I think obviously pain's the primary outcome, but a lot of your secondary outcome methods are really, uh, they're sort of um, associated with that, aren't they, in terms of opiate analgesia use, how quickly they can get to a straight leg raise, the number of physiotherapy sessions, they're all sort of markers of that really, aren't they? Absolutely, I mean, I think what this study really shows is for maybe one of a number of reasons and we can discuss those the patients in this study who had the robotic arm used had less pain and hence were able to get moving earlier needed less analgesics and were ultimately able to hit their physio milestones and get out of hospital more quickly yeah yeah absolutely so sort of that moves us on nicely to the, the sort of result, the key results of the paper prof there was 100 obviously 146 46 patients they were obviously very well balanced in terms of their demographics which you sort of expect with the way uh, i suppose you've recruited them and your, the nature of the practice and they seem to fit what you'd say the standard sort of uni need group um and obviously just just if you could summarize what you think the key findings are of the of the uh, of the outcomes that you looked at including pain and then all the secondary outcome measures I mean, I think the, the, the biggest difference we saw was that these patients had uh, less pain, particularly during the, the first couple of days. Mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a surrogate of that, they were able to mobilize more quickly. They required fewer physiotherapy interventions before they hit their discharge milestones, and they required less total opiate analgesia. And in terms of the physiotherapy sessions, was that that was very standardised, was it? Because obviously there was a you know there was nine. It was the median number in the conventional group was nine, and then in the robotic arm it was five. But that was just that was just purely indicating in terms of what they needed before they fit the discharge criteria. Is that right? Yeah, that's one of the nice things about the pathway we had in place. In that, first of all, it's important to say it's the same group of physios, the same group of nurses. You know, this is the same one hospital, one surgeon, one. Uh, operating theatre suite, all shifting in the same direction. So there was no big change here. Mm. And the, the standardised pathway of physios seeing patients in the morning, in the afternoon, third time if needed that day, and you know doing the same length session each time with a view to hitting those milestones before the physios ticked a box saying, milestones met, ready to go home. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of your post-operative complications, they were followed up for 90 days or roughly three months, that's right. And there was no difference between the two groups either at that stage, was there? Uh, no, not in terms of the overall post-operative complications. It really mm. was the early recovery and the, the improvement in uh, sort of discharge state. And are you continuing to follow them up, Prof, or is it, is it sort of working towards a different type of study? What was your sort of plan moving forward? No, so uh, it's great, great questions. I mean, the, these we stopped at 73 because we were worried that they, by then there was probably a cohort effect in that the nurses, the physios, the junior doctors, everybody was yeah. kind, of, kind of aware that this was looking different. So was, there was a point. So all these patients have been followed up. So we're, we're currently looking at the one year and two year PROMS data and their functional outcomes. Uh, but the most important thing, th this really was the preliminary study to look at the effect and see what we could measure because now our, we've got a randomized study that is well into recruitment. Okay. Looking into this into a slightly more elegant way in that the patients are now going to be blinded. 
you know, in the randomized study, the patients can't tell whether they've had the robotic arm or whether they've had a standard procedure with navigation. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, I think that's key. Isn't it? Obviously, we've, it's been very topical at the moment is the placebo effect, isn't it? And I think automatically when you tell a patient they're going to get a robotic knee, the assumption is they're getting something potentially better, isn't it? I think that's inevitable, really. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think of 73 cases, you know, that's over several months. It is certainly possible here that there was a perception by the team that, you know, these patients can be pushed harder, they can move more quickly. Uh, because we started from a very poor starting point in mm -hmm. terms of length of stay for this operation. So massive opportunity. So some of this opportunity could, could have arisen just as a result of that. I think we have to, be, we have to accept there are quite significant limitations here. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, though, in terms of, you know, I know we're always striving for that level one evidence, which is obviously the best thing to do. But I think in terms of, you know, the way that, that you balance two groups as best you can, I don't think you can really find a sort of case cohort series, you know, better in terms of, you know, they are well matched and you've used the same surgeon and the, the same, uh, same sort of protocol, um, protocols. But in terms of sort of moving forward then, and, you know, obviously we've mentioned the randomized control trial, but do you, how do you see it moving forward in terms of, you know, first of all, can we find a patient reported, you know, the patient body outcome is obviously seen as the gold standard now. Do you think we'll ever find a difference in those either in the short or longer term? And do you feel that we can prove this to be a cost effective in the NHS? So, so those are really important questions because what this paper looks at is the immediate perioperative outcome. That's, mm. that's, a, that's a lovely signal, but actually it's a, it's a small part of the whole story. What we've mm. really got to see, there is an economic benefit, of course, to leaving hospital earlier, to potentially being able to do this as day surgery. Uh, there's a benefit to requiring less physiotherapy as an inpatient or an outpatient. There's a benefit to potentially requiring less outpatient support. Mm. But we, what we really need to see is good function beyond the first couple of years. And ultimately, the really important thing is if this brings down the revision rate. Yeah. And that, that requires longer term follow-up. So this needs, I, I think RCTs are great here because we can then see if the signal we've picked up here is real. Yeah. But we're then going to have to go beyond the sort of single center RCT, see if this is generalizable beyond surgeons who are doing a high volume. Because the, the, the very interesting thing about navigation and robotics is you get so much information back that if, if you're into that, if you like that, that's tremendous and you can probably improve what you do and do it much better. But actually, it can also confuse. So it's, it's really important to see that this is generalizable. But I think the registries are going to have an important role to play here. Because mm. what we really need to be doing is looking at two-year data, five-year data in the registries and saying that when this becomes disseminated, when this is out in many hospitals, are we seeing a lower re-intervention rate? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like you, like you just alluded to there, I think the one thing whenever you know, we do get positive data with new innovations is the, the tendency is to everybody want to try and pick it up. And I think we have to be obviously, and the tendency then is to expand your inclusion criteria and then it can go, it's like bushfire, isn't it? But actually what you want is that, you know, the right patients and then the data will speak for itself, really. I think that's, that's going to be key to it, isn't it, really? It, it will be. And I, I mean, I think you mentioned whether these patients are going to function better. I don't think the proms are going to pick that up necessarily. No. We can do, and, and we do do, in fact, performance-based studies so if you get patients up on treadmills, walking uphill or downhill at speed, if you look at their gait, I suspect if we get their biomechanics absolutely spot on, uh, then we may do better. But yeah. I think in terms of the bigger picture, in terms of the population, the really key thing will be reducing revision rates and getting good implant longevity 
that will really deliver the cost effectiveness here. Yeah, that, that's what it is, isn't it? Because I mean, there's a, I think there's recently published in the BNJ Open saying that probably even even some of the data from the NGR says the uni knee replacement might be more cost effective than the total. But if if those if like you say, if we can get the revision rate down, that will be the key really to it moving forward. Yeah, no, no that that would be the big win. We're obviously we're a long way from that with, with this study, but I think this is reassuring because this study captured our learning curve. So we've not really seen anything adverse in the learning curve. These patients are doing better than a technique that I've, I've certainly been doing for the last 20 years. And the, the, the other interesting thing here, which is not necessarily part of this paper, but comes from this cohort, is that you get the implant alignment right straight away with this technology. There doesn't seem to be a learning curve to getting the implant alignment right. There is an increase in time when you're learning the robotic technique. Mm. Undoubtedly takes the surgeon and the operating team a bit of time to get used to it, to having the robotic arm in the theater, to adjusting to the extra information. So sure. I think there is a learning effect there. Excellent, yeah. Well, Prof, thank you so much for joining us for our, our BJJ podcast, and congratulations on, a, on an excellent study. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed listening in, and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook, and the like. And feel free to post or tweet about anything we've discussed this day. And thanks again for joining us.